morning. My name is Brandon Barnes. I am uh, one of the elders here at the chapel, and we are in the Easter approach. I can't believe it. Spring is here. We're excited. It's a huge moment of celebration for Christians all over the world, Christ's resurrection. And this is when all the grocery store aisles start to break out the Time and Life magazine, special editions of depictions, various depictions of Jesus. Of course, I'm not sure how accurate many of these really are. But the main point of debate, can someone really raise from the dead? And if they did, shouldn't we spend a little more time talking about this and looking into this claim? And so what we're going to do for this week and next week is we're going to take a break from Galatians and we're actually going to go back and we're going to look in the Gospel of Mark. And Gary and Zach and myself will be doing that meet today uh, and then we'll have a Good Friday service and an Easter Friday service. Again, looking at the Gospel and narrative of Mark and his testimony. It's unique. Mark's testimony is unique because it is in fact the shortest, most succinct uh, telling of Jesus' life. It's believed that Mark was uh, likely a secretary or a translator to Peter, one of the first 12 disciples. And so if you read through the book of Mark, you'll actually find that uh, nothing really happens in the book of Mark without Peter present. So it's almost certainly an eyewitness testimony of Peter. Tim Keller in his book and his commentary, which by the way, this is a great Easter reading we're, we're recommending. You can find this at Amazon. Uh, he says about the book of Mark, he says it's not a dry history. Mark, writing in the present tense, often uses words like immediately. And you can't help but notice the abruptness and breathless speed of the narrative. Jesus is not merely a historical figure, but a living reality, a person who addresses us today. It's very, very um, contemporary. Keller goes on to say, the conciseness of the narrative is focused on Jesus' doing focused on his doing, and by the end of the book, you'll be left with two options. Mark will bring you a narrative that, a lot, that will get you to either or compel you to either believe who Jesus is and make him your Lord or walk away. There is no in-between. And so a good synopsis for those who, again, might be new, maybe uh, you, you turn out at Easter and, and so you got some catching up to do, a good synopsis of Mark, if you're going to dig into it, chapters one through eight, really establishing Jesus' identity through his forgiveness of sins, through his miracle working, uh, those kinds of stories, and then chapters nine through 16 really dig into the purpose of Jesus, the journey to the cross, why it was necessary, and what it means and what it accomplishes. And so... What we're going to do this morning and through Easter is we're going to look at those chapters, the latter half of his life, and his purpose, his purpose. Jesus' identity and the building of his following would start to swell because of the establishing of his identity. People were following him because of his miracles, because of the truth he was speaking. People would follow him all over Judea and the Sumerian countryside. And while he shunned the ideas of power, as we'll get into a little bit later, that the world wanted him to have, we finally arrive at, at Mark chapter 11, where Jesus is going to take the mantle and title of king in what is known as his triumphal entry. And so I want us to work through aspects of Christ's life this morning by looking at Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, please open them with me. Verses 1 through 18, we're going to use this outline. We're going to see Jesus and his purpose as king, verses 1 through 7. 
We're gonna see why it's significant that Jesus rode to us on a donkey, verses eight through 11. Then Jesus will move into the temple and he's going to do something that will really upset the Jewish leaders at the time. He's gonna clear the cluttered temples and what that means for us. And then finally, Jesus announcing himself or becoming the, the, the true manifestation of the king that we need. Before we read this morning, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us through Mark. God, we thank you for the succinctness of this gospel, Lord, that it speaks directly to us, directly to our hearts, in words, Lord, we can understand. I just ask that um, you would, in fact, this morning be the king that we need in our hearts. Pray that that would be clear in my words and through your word specifically, God. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so follow along with me. Here we go, verses one through seven. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied it at the doorway, As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing, untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. So you get the idea, succinct, right? Two points in this passage that I want us to look at to help us understand his preparation and his declaration of the kind of king he wants to be to us. I want us to see first where and how Jesus prepares for where he will go, and I want us to see what he chooses to ride on. His chosen approach matters to us this morning. First, how Jesus prepares. The verse says he and his disciples approach Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives. These two locations, if you have any familiarity with the New Testament or the Bible in general, are super important. They're super important. Jerusalem was the place of the temple. This is where Jesus spent much of his time teaching, ministering to crowds. But the Mount of Olives was a special place. He would go there for rest. He would go there for solitude. He would go there for intimacy with his friends and perspective. And so if you do a word search in the New Testament on the Mount of Olives, you will see how how significant this was in Christ's life. The Bible is clear that after he was teaching with crowds and he would spend all day with them, he would actually go there to camp. He would go sleep on the Mount of Olives. You actually see that he would break away from all of his earthly relationships and he would go, the Bible uses the term as usual, to be with the Father on the Mount of Olives. Jesus would share and he would sing songs and there's verses that talk about he and and the disciples singing hymns together on the Mount of Olives. He would look upon and pray for Jerusalem keeping perspective on his mission. The Mount of Olives overlooked the temple. Jesus was perfect. He was the perfect human, but he needed a place where he could go to stay focused on his purpose, a place with minimal distraction where he could prioritize the Father, where he could prioritize his friends and his calling. And why is this instructive to us? Well, our purpose can be thrown into Confusion, if it consists, if our life just consists of simply reacting to everything that we come into contact with in this world. It can be overwhelming. And this can occur if our purpose is incorrectly defined as well. 
You see, we tend to confuse purpose with performance. What do I mean by that? Well, if you try to define your purpose around your status at work or your upward mobility or maybe your social media following or your influence in social media, if you put your eggs in those baskets, well, what happens if you fail at getting that promotion or those likes or influences kind of stop coming along? Anxiety, depression, frustration, they begin to rule your heart. Why? Because as aspirations, they're not bad. But as purpose for life, they rob you of joy. The Dalai Lama actually had something interesting. He said, man sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money in order to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he can't enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die, and then he dies having never really lived. In the Bible, King Solomon said it more succinctly. He said, incorrect understanding of purpose is chasing after the wind. Accepting this and using these not as a purpose for life, but the way um, that you see God at work in your life. If you, if you start to recognize that God actually gave you your gifts, God created you. He fulfilled, he's fulfilling you by, he wants to fulfill you by having you use your gifts in his service. He gave them to you. Accepting that and then using these not as a purpose for life, but as a way to see God at work in your life takes the pressure off of performance because your identity is attached to real purpose and real meaning. Jesus maintained focus on his purpose on the Mount of Olives through fellowship with God, through rest, encouragement of close community and in serving others. Do you have a place like that that centers you? Do you have a place like that that brings you rest, a quiet spot, prioritizing time with your community and, and those that know the word of God and that can work with you and, and bring wisdom into your life? If not, you'll be driven by anxiety and fear, having not really ever lived life. And this brings us to the second point of significance in this passage, and that's how Jesus rides into Jerusalem. They brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it, is what the text says. Jesus knew his purpose, and now he's going to demonstrate the kind of authority that he would have and what he was going to do. Why a colt or a donkey? That's basically what it's saying. Why a colt or a donkey? Why not something more powerful or beautiful, like a big horse? Well, according to historians in the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders rode horses when they're going to war, but donkeys when they came in peace. And so 1 Kings 1.33 mentions King Solomon actually riding a donkey for his inauguration. Judges 5.10, 2 Samuel 16.2, they give these pictures of donkey riders in peaceful times and enduring celebrations. So the prophet Zechariah, he foretold this exact thing. Zechariah 9, uh, 9 through 10, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey or a colt. The fowl of a donkey. Now listen to this. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The point is this. The purpose of King Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on a donkey is not to bring the sword of war to the people, but he's going to take the sword of war for the people on their behalf. 
One author said it this way, the sacrificial death of Christ transformed God's enemies who were exposed to his wrath into God's children who are sheltered by his love. This is his march to Calvary, to the cross. The people will cheer him on now only to turn on him later, as you'll see in the next service. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was deliberate in the ways he remained focused on his purpose. Jesus came to take the war between us and God. He rides on a donkey determined to give his life as a ransom for us. But let's move on. Verses 8 through 11. It says, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to, uh, he went to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus, again, he had amassed this great following, and it was the assumption by the people, not the teachings of Jesus necessarily, that he would be a kind of Messiah that would overthrow Rome, and he would usher Israel back into power akin to King David, which is why they shout this. And Jesus, this isn't the throne he's going to take. He's a king that recognizes a deeper need in our lives. But there's a lot of Jewish history and precedent that's kind of called out here. 2 Kings 9, 12 through 13, we actually see Jehu, when he's taking the throne of Israel, people threw their cloaks down. The book of Leviticus outlines during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would cut down palm branches and they'd make these temporary structures to kind of commemorate their time in the wilderness. And so I just want to make a, a single point in this passage, and that's the one we just sang about. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was being said and quoted out of Psalm 118.26. And it's this shout of excited arrival. The belief that prophecy was being fulfilled, that something was now happening finally. This is a, a shout for excited hope. Even if misunderstood at the time, it speaks to the desire and need and necessary arrival for a savior. Jeremiah 33, 12, in those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right. Psalm 118, I give you thanks for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Christ is the blessing that came. He rode to us. This is a specific encouragement this morning to those of you here who are believers in Christ. And let me tell you why. Because if you are, if you've believed Jesus as your savior, you don't need to worry about future arrivals and you don't need to be anxious about arrivals that aren't happening. Why? Because Jesus arrived. The Bible uses this term for those who trust in Christ and it's called saint. It's the designation of people set apart for himself, for a new purpose. And so Christ's arrival has brought his followers, saints, to their destination. Listen to this, Hebrews 12, 8 through 14. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is pointing the, the church, hey, this isn't like what happened with Moses when he would go to the mountain, there'd be fire and you couldn't touch that mountain. No, he's saying, you have now come to God, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You're no longer in a waiting room. You're no longer on the outside looking in with your face up against the glass. You have come to God because Jesus has made you perfect. His arrival brought you to your destination. Eternity began when you received his life for yours. Death is now just a doorway to the actual physical presence with Jesus, but his arrival has secured you. You have come to God. For sure, life will bring difficulty, uncertainty, but knowing that God thought enough of you and me to put his son from all eternity on a donkey of peace and march him straight to the temple of our hearts should demonstrate that there's something very different about this God. If you're only here on Easter and Christmas, there might be something more worthwhile to investigate than you thought. Build on this foundation, saints, because other arrivals will fail you. They will. Your health will fail you. Your family will fail you. Your lover will fail you. Your friend will fail you. But Jesus hasn't, and he won't. You can confidently say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I have arrived to the Father through his son Jesus. I am his. He is mine. Good stuff so far. Let's keep going. 11, uh, 12 through 18. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of many money changers and the, branch, uh, the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teacher of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So teach Jesus reaches the temple. It's early in the day. Prior to getting there, he sees this fig tree. He's hungry and he approaches it, but he's left disappointed. We actually have this detail added in both the gospels of Matthew and the gospel of Mark in these accounts. And it's an interesting detail that it serves in many ways to kind of be this prophetic sign of spiritual barrenness. Jesus will encounter when he comes to the temple itself. And so Israel, as you know, was given divine favor, and yet the temple that Jesus is going to walk into has shifted from a place where God dwells with the people to a place where his people are exploiting and using other people. The word temple in the Bible in its most simplistic form is just this. It's where man and God come together. And we see pictures of this. The first temple is the Garden of Eden. You had man and woman and, and, and God together perfectly. But man and woman rebel from God and they're cast out. And so God is going to establish physical temples in which the people can come near to God. But it'll be through blood sacrifice and through priests. But God will be there with them. And so Jesus approaches the temple and he's hoping to see some early fruit on the tree. And it's clear that it wasn't totally in season yet. 
but he's left disappointed. And we sense Jesus in his full humanity isn't all that different from us right now. We're a couple weeks out from seeing those little sprouts on the trees, right? And you get excited. And if they come a little earlier, you're like, oh, warm weather's almost here. This is great, right? New Englanders, we get excited about that. It reminds us that change is on the horizon, that warmer days are ahead, that beauty and new life are coming. And some fig trees would develop these little buds and you could go tear them off and you could eat them. And so that's what Jesus wants to do. But when he sees no signs of fruit, it's an implication of the sickness of our sin and the fallenness from God. The tree is a kind of picture, temple picture of these fruitless efforts to be near God, but to be so far removed from the heart of the Father. The prophet Micah said it like this. He said, what misery is mine? I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave, the faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Jesus, in an act of righteous anger, he steps into his father's house and he says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. God made the provision for all people to be with him. And we see his own chosen people abusing these provisions by taking advantage of other people. Instead of his Jewish brothers and sisters ushering the nations into the heart of God, they were essentially selling them indulgences, stealing from them rather than pointing them to the heart of God. And Jesus enters the temple through this primary courtyard where the Jews and Gentiles were allowed to be together and he declares really what is a beautiful gospel utterance that should encourage us. In Christ, we too are ushered into a salvation plan that from the beginning was from all people. This is a house of prayer for all nations. This is a place where anyone can seek and find me. Isaiah 56, 7 through 8, where Jesus is quoting from, the last line actually says, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, listen, I will gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. So Jesus sees this cancer of sin in the heart of man, and he stands ready to clear out the temple he wants to reside, which is our lives. Those barren trees not producing fruit, he will come into, and he will do that for us. 1 Corinthians 2.16, look, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Ephesians 3.17, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. What stands between you and Jesus? God's concern is for all people to come to the knowledge of goodness of himself. There's one other interesting point to this that I want you to see. There's very clear words of ownership and entitlement by Jesus here. In all of the gospel accounts, this narrative is included one way or the other. And John, it's said like this, says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. As we just read, Jesus says in quotes from Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer. Jesus acting on behalf of the father, but also under the authority of his divinity as God and man, stating that people have polluted his home. But then... Jesus, after confrontation and confrontation with unrelenting and unbelieving people, shifts and he distances himself. 
And we get to Matthew 23, 37 through 38. If you look at that passage, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those who sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Listen, look, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus says heartbreaking words, your house. He's moving on. He will go to the cross, the place of our deepest need. What's the shape of your temple this morning? Your body may not feel like a temple this morning. Mine certainly doesn't. But you are an image bearer of God. He created you with deep needs that can only be met by himself. God is calling. You are here today perhaps because you know that, one, your body was designed to be a temple where you and him dwell together. And two, it's his house. The claim of Jesus is that you can't operate your house correctly without him. Don't let him move on declaring your house is desolate, left to you. To summarize, Jesus understood his clear purpose so that we can understand ours. His arrival was sure and permanent and he brings us to himself. Saints have arrived. We see that Jesus establishes our lives as a temple for his good purpose. He takes the sword of war and he gives us instead the cult of peace. We get to the end of the passage and we read, the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. In many ways, this event that Jesus does, this clearing of the temple, is the final straw that brings about Jesus' death. Because an order, an order to clear the temple, in order to remove the barriers between the people and God, this king will have to face the pride of the human heart, and Jesus understands that it's deadly. It's deadly. Jesus is the manifestation of a true king, and he will go head to head with man's desire to be the manifestation of our own kings. And I want to spend a little bit of time here as we wrap up, because what I'm going to talk about really leads us into Good Friday and Easter. What is a king? What is a king? It is the ultimate expression of authority. The ultimate expression of authority and the biggest barrier to accepting the manifestation of Jesus as king is our desire to manifest ourselves as king, to be the ultimate expression of authority. Fifteen years ago, a book came out and it started kind of this pseudo-psychology movement on all about manifesting techniques. It was a best-selling book. It was called The Secret. 30 million copies, 50 languages. Promoters, Oprah Winfrey, Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, essentially basically said that the belief is you can turn something from an idea into reality using your thoughts and feelings and beliefs to bring something physical to bear. From the Oprah website, if you see it and feel it, you will achieve it. Take action. Working towards your goals is imperative. Many people believe that this philosophy works by aligning God or the universe with our wishes. Ask the universe for what you want and keep an eye out for signs of achievement, of success. The only thing stopping you from manifesting your dreams is you. What you can visualize in your mind, you can hold in your hands. So get to work. You have manifesting to do. 
Any philosophy that uses you that much makes me nervous to begin with. But this philosophy works on a ton of people. Why? Because it's works-based. It depends on you, again, to determine what is most important to you. Get busy. Start visualizing. Ask the universe for it. Now, this was 15 years ago, and some of you may be like, oh, whatever. But nearly every show you watch, just listen carefully, God has been swapped out for the word universe. Put it out to the universe. What's the universe say? Who is this universe? Why should this universe care what you want? What are the assumptions being made about this personified universe? Why? Universe is just an echo chamber, isn't it? We just want our desires to be affirmed. And the best way to do that without any friction is to seek affirmation, seek affirmation from something or someone that really doesn't care about what's going on. We don't stop to ask, what if we just don't know what is best for ourselves? The struggle for us at the end of the day is that we want to be the ultimate expression of authority. The world always overpromises and always underdelivers. What makes us think gobbling up more and more of what the world has to offer will make us feel full. Emptiness is found in the manifestation of ourselves. And it should point us to the truth of Jesus and why that king might have something so much better for us. Why? How? Because when we align our will to our will, we are demanding of ourselves to know what our present and future needs at all times and all circumstances are going to be. Can any of us bear that burden? It doesn't bring peace. It brings anxiety. We can't know this. There's an interesting, I work in technology and there's some interesting technology out there right there. Uh, Students here, I'm going to blow your cover. Parents, if you don't know about ChatGTP, you need to go talk to your, your kids about it. These chatbots, artificial intelligence, um, our, our company's studying these things closely. But when these chatbots give the wrong information, there's actually a term called hallucination. Hallucination, it's fascinating. It's the confidently giving of wrong information by computers. The information is so compellingly delivered to you that you might believe it because it tells you so convincingly. It's the blind leading the blind. Jesus comes to the temple of our hearts to break our hallucination because the human heart is so full of pride, we confidently fill ourselves with wrong information about our purpose and what matters most in this world. We're hallucinating. But I believe, even in this philosophy, resides a deep desire for us to want to be known and actually told we have purpose that gives us meaning. I like to call it the Home Alone Syndrome. Everybody seen the movies Home Alone? Macaulay Coughlin. It starts out fun, right? You're home alone. It's the freedom, autonomy, all those things. It's a party. But then as the movie progresses, the money runs out, the cupboards go bare, the night starts to settle in. You hear bumps in the night. And what does he want? He wants a good parent. We're like that kid. Jesus sought the will of the Father, and he tells us to do the same. Not our will, but his will. Why? Because Christians hold that God is our good creator, and he will act in ways that we need, maybe not always in ways we want. And that's okay, because that's a good parent. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. It's trustworthy. He went to the cross to demonstrate that he is the true king. He raised from the dead. The wisdom and truth of Christ is this. We can't will our way out of our circumstances. 
Putting our hopes out to the universe is not where we're told to put our hope. The lottery of the universe is no hope at all. This is all a hallucination. Jesus says that it's the temple you seek. If that's the temple you seek, then that's the temple left to you desolate. Desolate means deserted, bleak, dismal, empty. He honors our free will. And he's going to give us what we want. And if you want more of you, then you get more of you for eternity. That's what the Bible calls hell. That's what he came to solve. The manifestation of Jesus as king says, I take, take the peace I have brought to you because I took the sword of war for you. I come to you on a donkey. I come peace flag waving. Take all your brokenness, all your fears, doubts, failures. I take them all to the cross for you so that Psalm 34, 8 is real to you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Further, Jesus says, I want to give you real life. Colossians 2, 13, God made you alive. That means alive to what is true reality, not what you can manifest God himself gives you a new reality that is eternal, that's filled with hope and promise, not based off of your limited understanding of the world, but based off the creator God who can do immeasurably, immeasurably more in his good purposes than we can ask or imagine. We're not children left home alone to try to figure this out. We have the manifestation of peace this world longs to hear and the security of the spirit on our lives. Jesus takes the sword of war to restore us to God. He fills our desolate temples by riding to us. We are completed by his manifestation of king, not our manifestation as kings. For those who celebrate and rejoice the atoning blood of our Savior this Easter holiday. The saints in the room this morning, this is for you. We have the opportunity to further remember the work done on our behalf through communion. This symbolic feast we take is for those who believe, for those who chose to follow this king. If you're still figuring out this morning and you haven't committed your beliefs to who Jesus wants you to be, we ask you just simply to pray and observe. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, by the, uh, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul's saying, in Jesus, we have been freed from the written regulations of the law and we've been given something so much better. Grace bought through the broken body of Christ, his blood shed for us. Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, Jesus said, and he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said to, to them, this is my body given to you, do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to pray real quick and then we're going to take the bread together. Lord Jesus, all we can do is say thank you. Thank you. You took the donkey of peace and you rode it into our lives, doing the war for us. We thank you for that. Let's take the bread. Matthew 26, 28. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And pray, and then we'll take this together. Jesus, you cleared the clutter of our hearts. 
through this new and better covenant bought with your precious blood. We receive this together in gratitude. May our lives be lived out as offerings of thanksgiving. In your name we pray. Let's take the cup.